Good morning, friends. Uh, you know, I imagine that for most of us, it is probably a safe bet to say that there are things going on in the world, uh, or maybe at least your little corner of it, that leave you frustrated by your inability to impact those things. Uh, I know that's true for me. I mean, everything in the, in the larger scheme from things like terrorism and war on the one hand, maybe to a little closer to home, to the experience of broken friendships or the ever-tightening belt <clears throat> around the family budget. Our passage this morning uh, comes from Jonah 3, and uh, one of the things that's really amazing about this, this passage, and it's part of a story that you guys are familiar with and we're working our way through, but I do think this passage is inviting us to be a part of something really big and really impactful, right? Something that uh, uh, we wouldn't be frustrated by our inability to impact. Specifically, we'll see by means of a negative example and a really profound positive example, I think the Lord wants to show us how we can be part of something as significant as an assault on the gates of hell this week. Uh, sound interesting? I thought it might. So let's get to work. Like I said, we're in Jonah 3 this morning. Uh, the book of Jonah is one of the tiny little prophetic books near the end of the New Testament. So if you get to Matthew, you've already gone too far, but Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, next is Jonah. It probably takes two pages in your Bible, so you might have to fish for it a minute. But effectively, uh, I didn't even mean, uh, how close? <laughs> I like that. I, I, I didn't plan that. It just, serendipitous Bible humor. There we go. Anyway, <laughs> Jonah chapter 3, um, it's effectively take two for Jonah, isn't it? So, so he's already tried to flee from his commission, and the upshot of that was that he did spend three days in the great fish. Jonah has now been spit out on dry land. God has not accepted his resignation of his prophetic commission, and he's giving to Jonah the charge once again to go to Nineveh. So follow along with me as I read for us uh, all of Jonah chapter 3. Here we are beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster 
that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Uh, So verses 1 and 2 then introduce for us basically the do-over here, right? Uh, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are virtually identical to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Now, what's interesting at this point in chapter 3, we are waiting to see what happens to Nineveh in particular, but we are not waiting to see if the Lord is a merciful God in general, right? God has already been profoundly merciful to the sailors in chapter 1. He has mercifully preserved Jonah from certain death by sending the great fish. And even now, God is patiently pressing Jonah into his prophetic obligation. And the reason for that is not merely to be a channel of mercy to the Ninevites, although it is that, but it is also a mode of surgery on Jonah's deep misunderstanding of himself and of how grace works. By extension, we can say the mercies of God in Jonah chapter 3 are still at work this morning as a merciful reminder to us as well, isn't it? It's, it's, it's also easy for us to dangerously misunderstand ourselves and to misunderstand the operation of divine grace. So unlike the first time, now we see in our chapter in verses 3 to 4, Jonah is now, he's resigning himself to go to the exceedingly great city of Nineveh. To be clear, he is not enthusiastic about this. His message is incredibly brief. In verse 4, we're told he walks into the city a day's journey. He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's all that's recorded of his message. By the way, when he uses the language of being overthrown, that's the same terminology that's used to describe God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of Genesis. Now, uh, some commentators think that, that Jonah may have said more than is recorded in that, in that simple sentence. Others don't think he said more. Um, I, I believe that there are several features of the story that make it unlikely that Jonah said more than this. And I think there are very good reasons, as we'll see in a bit, to believe that Jonah exclusively preached a message of coming judgment, that, that, that he said coming judgment and no more. Uh, but we'll see on that in a bit. In any case, then you get to verses 5 through 9, and we see that the Ninevites' response is instantaneous, it is far-reaching, even though it's based on a very sparse message. Their response starts with the people of God, right? You see that in verse 5. They believed God. They believed this message. Then their response spreads to the king, and it becomes officialized throughout the city by the king of Nineveh, who actually agrees in verse 8. The king agrees in verse 8 with God that they have been evil and violent. He agrees uh, with God's verdict on their sin. And then, and then the society-wide repentance kind of responds throughout the, throughout the, the, the community. It's amazing, and it encompasses every level from citizen to king to animals, Right? Even the animals are included in some sense in this, respect, uh, in, in this uh, presentation of, of self-humbling. Now, <clears throat> the point of that, in part at least, is to provide a huge narrative contrast to Jonah's own response to God, right? Jonah has far greater knowledge of God than the Ninevites do, and yet his obedience has been very far from instant, 
or thorough. So, so what we find, right, in Jonah 3, we find Jonah 3, it, it, it's actually narrating a truth that gets encapsulated next week in chapter 4, verse 2. Namely, we see, we see the narrative display of the truth that God is slow to anger and that he loves to be merciful to sinners. And we praise God for that. And at the same time, we don't want to presume upon his patient mercy, do we? Because it is also true that God does not trifle with sin. In fact, a subsequent generation of Ninevites was destroyed for their unrepentant wickedness according to the prophecy of Nahum about 150 years later. But in this case, in the case of Jonah chapter 3, as we see in verse 10, following this generation's repentance, God does show mercy to Nineveh and he relents from sending judgment. So that's the summary of the story, right? What are we supposed to take from it? I think four main points. Junior made fun of me last time he preached and said I use way too many points, so I'm cutting it down, Junior. Here we go. Down to four. Just kidding. Uh, I'll give them to you, and then we'll talk through them. So number one, we're supposed to learn something about the poison of spiritual pride. The poison of spiritual pride. Number two, we're supposed to learn something about the initiating grace of God. The initiating grace of God. Number three, we are supposed to see that Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. That's the big one. And number four, we are supposed to heed the warning. So here we go again. One, the poison of spiritual pride. Number two, the initiating grace of God. Number three, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Number four, heed the warning. Sound good? Here we go. Number one, the poison of spiritual pride. So Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh, uh, I would argue, turns on the hinge of a critical misunderstanding. We've kind of already mentioned this, a critical misunderstanding of himself and of how God's grace works. And the result of that very slippery self-deception is the poison of spiritual pride. So, um, so Jonah has come to see himself as one of the good guys who gets what he deserves in mercy from the Lord, and the Assyrians or the Ninevites as the bad guys who deserve different treatment. Now, we can, we can acknowledge that in some respects, Jonah's angst about Assyria is understandable, right? They, in, in, in chapter 3, 8, the king acknowledges that they have been a violent and evil, a wicked people, and they were a great threat to Jonah's people. The problem is not so much that Jonah opposes their sin and evil. That, that's not really the problem, is it? The problem is that Jonah has neglected to see how his own sin and evil puts him in the same boat of needing God's scandalous, enemy-loving mercy to rescue him too. See, Jonah has slipped from embracing righteousness, which is good, to being self-righteous, from righteousness to self-righteous. The trap of self-righteousness springs when I try to claim even just a little bit, just a little bit of the credit for why God would have chosen to show mercy to me. It's very subtle. It's very dangerous. It usually happens beneath the surface. It usually happens when I'm not even recognizing that it's happening, 
But, but in the subtlety of one's thinking, there's a shift in, 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 in terms of, of, of moving from thinking now in terms of merit instead of mercy, right? And that's, a, that's not just a danger to Jonah. That's a danger to all of us. So as he finally heads off to Nineveh in our passage, you, you, you can almost hear him grumbling under his breath, I thank God that I'm not like those evil Ninevites. Uh, one commentator put it like this. <clears throat> That's the danger of spiritual pride. By focusing on the sin of others and forgetting our own, we view others as lower than us and thus unworthy of compassion or grace. They become sinful objects we can write off as undeserving of our mercy and love or even of God's. So what's amazing then is that Jonah, he heads off to Nineveh. Yes, he goes. He goes to Nineveh hoping that God will destroy Nineveh, but fearing that God won't do that. Indeed, if Jonah had been convinced that God was going to bring judgment, he, he probably would have jumped at the chance to get a front row seat to watch the fireworks. But because he expects that God is up to something else, he's not all that eager to go. He makes his way into the city. He heralds his very terse message about looming judgment. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, so let, let, me, let me bring this back up. Uh, Jonah's behavior in chapter 4, which Eric will preach for us, for us next week, his behavior in chapter 4 is one indicator. It's one indicator that Jonah probably did not explicitly say, hey guys, just so you know, if you repent, God will show you mercy. Okay? His behavior in verse 4, or chapter 4, sorry, is one indicator. But an indicator from our chapter that Jonah didn't do that comes from the king's reaction in verse 9. When the king says, who knows, maybe God will turn and relent, that means he doesn't know. <laughs> he does not know for sure if God will. He has not been given any specific assurances that God will withhold judgment. And yet, and yet, even though Jonah's message is meager, God's word is living and active, isn't it? And the surgery is underway. And we see that clearly in point number two, the initiating grace of God. The initiating grace of God, that is our great hope, isn't it? <clears throat> it is always true, friends, that we come to love because he has first loved us. Now, I want you to notice that God's grace manifests itself not just at the point that he relents from judgment. It's, it's grace there, right? But God's grace is also on display in the warning against sin and evil itself. It's, a, it's not an either or. It's a both and, isn't it? Their sin and evil must be stopped. And God shows mercy to the repentant. Now, Sometimes, um, reading a passage like this, God's relenting becomes at least a cause for, for some curiosity. What's happening here becomes clearer once we understand the purpose of a warning, the purpose of a warning. So, what is implicit in our chapter, in Jonah chapter 3, what's implicit about the nature of a warning in Jonah chapter 3 is explicit in this statement from Jeremiah 18. Let's look at that together. 
Jeremiah, as the mouthpiece of God, right, says, so God's, these are God's words, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So here, here we begin to get a helpful explanation about the intention of a warning, what, what a warning is seeking to do, right? Uh, maybe it would help to think about the purpose in an analogous way of a parental warning, of a parental warning. So um, we got kids with us this morning. Maybe they've heard things like this. Maybe, maybe mom says, hey, little Johnny, I'm going to punish you if you don't stop flicking your peas at your sister at the dinner table. Maybe mom says that. Or, or maybe mom says, Johnny, you're about to be punished. Okay? Now, one, one, one of those statements is explicit about the condition of repentance, right? You stop flicking your peas, you won't be punished. The other statement is not explicit about that condition, but the purpose in either case is to turn the behavior so as to avoid having to follow through with the threatened punishment. You with me? Warning stirs up turning, which leads to relenting. With me? All right. By definition then, by definition, a warning invites an opportunity to respond, doesn't it? The one who issues the warning is the one who is taking the initiative. If the time is up, you don't warn anymore, you just punish. So warnings are themselves instruments of mercy. And again, that's true whether you explicitly state the condition of relenting for repentance or not. So let's apply to Nineveh. At this point, Nineveh is already evil and violent. They already deserve judgment. They're not thinking about being evil and violent. They're already knee-deep, right? So God would be perfectly just to bypass warning and simply judge, wouldn't he? So even if all that Jonah states explicitly is that judgment is looming, that is still an initiation of mercy by God to stir up their repentance. Notice, why else, when, when God sends Jonah with his message, why else would God have Jonah say, yet 40 days? Yet 40 days. What's, what's the point of, of declaring judgment but establishing a window of time between the declaration of judgment and the experience of judgment? What's the point? It's a signal. It's implicit, but it's a signal. The time's not up yet. The time's not up yet. It's an invitation to repent, right? See what's happening here? Uh, some have tried to leverage the language of divine relenting to say that God is pivoting somehow in response to something he didn't foresee. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Rather, God once again is taking the initiative by means of this warning to stir up their human repentance to which he has pledged himself to be merciful. God stirs up their repentance, and then when they feel the condition of human repentance, God is merciful to what he stirred up in them. 
It's mercy all the way down, beginning, middle, end, isn't it? And here's the thing. Jonah senses this too. Next week, you will see Jonah basically say to God in anger and irritation, I knew it, I knew it, I knew this is what you were up to, and that's why I tried to run away the very first time. How could Jonah possibly know that God was sending him to stir up Ninevite repentance if God didn't specifically state that in this case? How could he know that? Two reasons. One, he knows God's character, and Eric's going to elaborate on that next week. For our purposes in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah also has a really solid inkling about the purpose of a warning. Let me make one more point about Jonah and warnings. The reason that Jonah can sniff out what's going on here is because this pattern of divine warning, human repenting, God's relenting is right out of God's playbook with Israel. Famously so, when, God, when, when Moses was warned by God about Israel's idolatry with the golden calf in Exodus 32. In that story, like ours, <clears throat> Israel is already committing idolatry. So God doesn't have to tell Moses anything. But by alerting Moses, God is inviting Moses' mediatorial intercession to which God himself can then show mercy to Israel. And the upshot of his relenting looks awfully similar to what's going down in Jonah 3.10. Same word, similar effect. So God's repeating this pattern of mercy in Nineveh that he had already famously done for Israel. Jonah recognizes it. He smells the similarity, but he does not like it. Again, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Jonah has come to view himself and his kinsmen as spiritually superior and thus somehow as more deserving of God's favor. Jonah, at this point, can fathom a world in which God loves him, but he cannot fathom a world in which God loves his enemies. Now, by the way, it's, it's pretty obvious, right, that God is warning Nineveh. That's, that's, that's clear, isn't it? But let's not miss the fact that God is also, in this story, warning Jonah to repent of his own spiritual pride. A couple of weeks ago, Kenny preached to use the metaphor of God going multiple rounds like an MMA uh, match uh, with Jonah, trying to get him to, to, to submit, trying to get him to tap out, trying to get him to surrender to the Lord. God's still chiseling away at Jonah. And he has yet more to come. If Jonah will estimate himself correctly as one who is also a mercifully loved enemy of God, then Jonah can come to a more mature perspective on the news that God loves his enemies. And of course, the very same goes for us, right? How can we get to a mature perspective on the news that God loves our enemies? That leads us to point number three. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Here, the cues come right out of what Jesus says about Jonah in Luke 11 and Matthew 12. The point is this. 
Jonah's story points beyond himself to one who is greater than Jonah and does a greater work. I want to contrast for you for just a, just a few minutes the way that Jesus treats his enemies, that's us, with the manner in which Jonah is treating his enemies in our passage. So God tells Jesus, arise and go. And when Jesus does, he comes not to an evil city, but he comes to a world that is Nineveh. Make no mistake, insofar as it concerns Jesus' love for you and me, we are Nineveh, okay? In response to the commission to go, Jesus didn't balk, he didn't complain, he didn't try to flee, and he did not begrudge the direction of his father. Instead, he arose for the joy that was set before him. He went, he came to earth with a holistic message backed by the offering of himself as our saving sacrifice. Jonah grumbled about going to Nineveh. Jesus wept over the city that was about to kill him. Jonah might as well have been dead in the belly of the fish on account of trying to flee. Jesus actually died and rose again to pay the debt for his enemies because he didn't flee the cross, but went to it on our behalf. Jesus faced a far harder test. He also won a far greater victory. Jesus did not just face, face the potential wrath of Nineveh, but rather faced the wrath of God for sins he didn't commit. His was a greater sign, confirming an even greater message, wasn't it? And the fact <clears throat> that Jesus has decisively saved his enemies, again, that's us, is what frees our own capacity to pray for the same deliverance on behalf of our enemies. See, friends, God's initiating grace to us in Christ forgives us. It absolutely does that. But it also then enlists us as ambassadors of God's enemy-saving mercy. Because by tasting it, you and I have come to know and celebrate that that same enemy-saving mercy is the only way that we've been saved. So in light of Jesus being the greater Jonah, we come now to point number four. Our passage would have us to heed God's warning and to repent and obey his word where needed. So I wanna to think together along the lines of a few different possible kinds of needs, okay? Here's the first. <clears throat> Maybe, for some here this morning, maybe for some, like Nineveh, there's some sin, some evil in your hands, as it were, that comes to mind of which you need to repent today. Maybe the word for you this morning is to forsake the cultivation of such sin in your life. And if that's the word for you, that's a crucial warning to heed, isn't it? See, the, friend, the good news is not that you don't need forgiveness. The good news is that God loves to grant that forgiveness to those who turn from sin to Christ. So if you're recognizing your sin, even for the very first time today, it's a wonderful mercy, isn't it? A wonderful mercy to have that called to mind. The purpose of exposing that knowledge is so that you will heed the warning and repent and believe the good news of Jesus. 
But better still, because of Jesus, if you heed the warning, you know what you'll never have to say? You'll never have to say, who knows? Maybe God will forgive. You will never have to say that because Jesus died for his enemies, you and I included, you can know for certain that if you repent from sin and entrust yourself to his grace, God will forgive you. He will forgive you on the basis of the fact that Christ paid your debt at the cross. If that's you, if that's, if that's where this is landing on you, please talk with me or one of our prayer team members who will be at the front after the service today. Don't let that conviction pass you by. Number two, <clears throat> I said two and held up three fingers. I meant two. A lot of things going on up here. Pea brain can only keep up so much. <laughs> Perhaps, like Jonah, some of us need to repent of spiritual pride this morning. Maybe you're a person who's walked with God for a good long while, but you're realizing in light of our message this morning how easy it is to see the sins of others as more glaring than your own. And maybe, maybe that's leading you just a, just, just a little bit to feel a tiny bit more deserving of God's love because at least you're not like you know, so-and-so. If you are seeing that for the dangerous trap it is, again, praise God for that awareness, right? And ask him to help you repent of spiritual blindness about your own condition by helping you to grow ever more impressed by the depths of your own forgiveness at the cost of Christ's sacrifice, to see what Christ did for you right, when he saved his enemies. Number three, perhaps, perhaps, like Jonah, you have an enemy of the kind that causes you to struggle when you contemplate the possibility of God showing mercy to him or to her. Now, to be sure, you and I are not ambassadors to an entire ancient Near Eastern civilization. But if you are a Christian, you absolutely are an ambassador of God's steadfast love and mercy, aren't you? So, so God's enlisting us to move in this direction of his ambassadorial love even to enemies, in part, in part because doing that, it can free you from bitterness. That's, that's, a, that's a benefit. But more so, he's enlisting us to move in this direction because doing so conforms us even more into the likeness of Christ. And while that is good for our enemies, that's a gift to us. That's a gift to us. Remember, Jesus himself not only commands his disciples to love their enemies, but he's the one who does so climactically, right? What he calls for, he completes. And the reason that you and I can take a step in the direction of loving an enemy today is because he's already done the hardest part. That's why we can take a step. Uh, so, so thinking along those lines then, I want us to, to spend our remaining time thinking about what taking a step in the direction of loving an enemy might look like, okay? And let me be clear, not every step what would it look like to take a step today? 
And, and, and because of that, I, I, think, I think it's important to, to give a few pastoral preliminaries, right? I'm going to pastor, pastor well. So here's a couple of preliminary considerations and then some recommendations. Uh, the first preliminary is this. Love towards one's enemies is absolutely something that Jesus calls us to, but doing so wisely calls for discernment, doesn't it? In other words, in other words we, could go, we could go awry if we, if we thought of love as something exclusively in overly sentimental terms, right? Um, loving one's enemy does not, does not require turning a blind eye to sin. Okay? And if we take it in overly sentimental expressions, we perhaps might think that it, that it does. Love is compatible both with confronting sin and also compatible with overlooking an offense. It takes wisdom to discern which one is called for and when, right? We'd have to work uh, through matters on a case-by-case basis if we were going to drill down to that level of detail, and we don't have time for that now, but it is something that could be wonderfully processed in the context of a grace group, which footnote would be one of many reasons to consider joining a grace group. (coughs) Okay, advertisement over. Um, Still, another pastoral preliminary. Since we're thinking in terms of learning to take a hard but fruitful step in the direction of loving one's enemies, I'm going to recommend that perhaps, if if you're, you're thinking about doing this, perhaps don't begin with a 10 on the, the Richter scale of enemy level difficulty, okay? I'm not saying you never get there. I'm not saying you never get there. I am saying that progress is progress, and it's okay to start somewhere if you've never thought about doing this before or have thought about it but wondered how. <clears throat> so, for the moment, for the moment, maybe think less along the lines of taking this posture to the person who abused you as a child, okay? And if this is all new, if this is all new, maybe start instead with something like a friend who relied on your kindness when it was needed, but ditched your friendship once they felt less in need. And so you felt the sting of, you know, being, being used. Or maybe, maybe like a boss who passed you over for a promotion that you actually deserved. Maybe start with something on that level, okay? Now, one more preliminary. I absolutely believe <clears throat> that you can both seek the just prosecution, for example, of, say, a child abuser, and also pray for his or her salvation. You do both of those things, okay? All right. Uh, if you're further along, then, then kind of the scale that we've just laid out. If you're, if you're, if you're further along in your walk with Christ, th- go for it. You go for a level eight, go for a level nine, go for a level 10, that's great. But my point is this, if, if love of enemy is, it feels new and daunting and scary, which is understandable if it does, then just start a little bit lower on the scale for now, okay? And by doing so, by doing so, you can learn to trust God as he meets you in that process and ultimately helps you take a series of steps over the course of time. Either way, either way, I think it's safe to say that the place to start with love to enemy is prayer. Prayer, okay? Now, 
We've talked a lot about how the story of Jonah has analogies to the parable of the prodigal son, and Jonah often is analogous to the older brother in the parable. So let me say this. I know that the parable of the prodigal son is just that. It is a parable, okay? But if we could extrapolate from the parable, I bet it would be safe to say that the reason the older brother reacted like he did when the younger brother finally returned is probably because the older brother had not prayed for God's mercy towards the younger brother while the younger brother was gone. I think it's far more likely, right, as an explanation of the phenomena, that someone like the older brother would have just stewed in increasing judgmental superiority, nursing more and more spiritual pride. So let's bring it back to you and me, shall we? Whoever is on your mind, whoever's on your mind at the moment, God is not asking you to pray for the welfare of that person's soul because they deserve it. They do not deserve it. And that is precisely the point. Neither do you, neither do I. We can pray for the welfare of an enemy's soul because we have tasted the mercies of Christ who has not treated us as our sins deserve, right? Now, just to be extra clear, the prayer for your enemy is not a prayer for your enemy to prosper in their sin. It's not what the prayer is for. It is rather a prayer to bring them to enjoy the mercy of God that uniquely comes in repentance from sin. All right. What if doing even that much feels daunting today? Well, then I would encourage you to pray that God will help you to get to the point of being able and willing to make such a prayer. If, If the prayer for help to get to the place of making such a prayer is sincere, then even while it may be a struggle, that prayer expresses a humble, like, you know, mustard seed, but a humble trust in God to help clarify our deepest need and our greatest good. And that's a good prayer. It's not all the way home, but that's a good prayer. So what's the fuel that can get us there? The fuel that can get us down the path of love towards enemy is growing to embrace, as we've said, ever more deeply the truth that it is not just extravagant, scandalous mercy when God pursues our enemies with grace. Indeed, it is extravagant, scandalous mercy when he does that for us. So, here's your homework. I'm not your professor. You're not in a class, so I can't make you do this but I think you should. Yeah, homework. (laughs) If you want to do it as a group project or at least start on it as a group project in Grace Group, go for it. Here's your homework. This is my my recommendation Uh, in light of what we've said. This week, I would encourage you twice, twice to spend some time praying through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Specifically, with reference to how God has been merciful in saving you. Like, appropriate that as your own. Gratitude, right, for God's saving mercy in your life. Twice. Just just what God has done for you. Let that sink in deeply, okay? This is a three-part assignment, by the way. 
There's part one. Part two. Later in the week, two more times, two more times through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, but now with a view to asking God to do the same for your enemy, whoever you've got, it, whoever you've got in mind, right? To, to, to show similar uh, scandalous enemy-loving mercy that he has shown to you now to them. If that person's already turned to Christ, but it's still difficult for you to forgive, you can go through the passage and thank God that he has already done so in Christ, right? Uh, the point, the point is to root out vestiges of an older brother-like spiritual pride that sometimes remains stubbornly lodged in our thinking, okay? And three. <clears throat> Finally, later in the week, after you've done the other two items, later in the week, just take a peek, take a peek at Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 13 for a glimpse at how God produced some of this enemy-loving reconciliation between Jew and Gentile by means of Christ's work. There's your homework. Shall we end where we began? You want to be part of something really, really big this week? If you will ask the Lord to help you to take a step in this direction of praying for an enemy by faith, I believe you can, in fact, be a part of the assault on the gates of hell this week. Satan is not bothered when we settle merely for retaliatory tweets and keyboard warfare on social media, and Satan loves it when we succumb to the spiritual pride that smuggles in the notion that I deserve God's favor just a little more than so-and-so, right? But I assure you, I assure you that Satan hates it when the grip of spiritual pride on you recedes in place of a Christ-like willingness to pray for your enemies, to pray that your enemies, like Christ's enemies, may yet join the ranks of the family of God. The impact of that investment may be unseen in the moment that you make that prayer, but it is of un uh, incalculable effect, not just for your enemies, we pray that God would make it so, but also for you and I as we get pressed more and more into the Christ-like mold of who God designed us to be. And that is good mercy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you <clears throat> that you love to be merciful to your enemies. Not, only, not, not, not just that you're willing or, or even begrudging about it, but you delight to show mercy to your enemies. We thank you that though we have been counted among your enemies, you showed scandalous, steadfast love to us. There is no hope for us without it. If you didn't love your enemies, we could not be saved by your steadfast love. Jesus, we thank you that, that unlike Jonah, when you were sent, you delighted to go. You didn't give short shrift and you backed your message with your sacrifice. We pray that you would be honored as we cling in hope to you today. We pray that recognizing the extent of your uh, love on, and sacrifice on our behalf would be one that causes us to demote any completely uh, unrealistic sense of spiritual pride that may linger within us. Help us to be delighted over the mercy that you have shown us to the point
that we would want to be ambassadors of that love to others who also do not deserve it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.